When we talk about the scam life cycle, which is essentially all the steps that a victim goes through when being scammed, we often talk about the unwitting accomplices along the way, starting from telcos, social media companies, other interactions that victims have when they are looking to report scams, and of course, financial institutions, which we talked about a lot. In today's episode, I would like to focus on telcos. Today's scam ranger is Alex Qualici. He's the CEO of Umail, which has a mission to stop scam and spam calls. Scam Rangers, a podcast about the human side of fraud and the people who are on a mission to protect us. I'm your host, Ayelet Bigger-Levine, and I'm passionate about driving awareness and solving this problem. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. It's great. I can't wait to hear about your journey and how you started with Umail and how you got into this industry. And I want to say that my background is kind of more banking fraud and transactions and account takeover fraud. And I'm really curious to get the telco perspective in this conversation with you. But let's start from the beginning. Tell us how your journey in the space started and how you got to Umail. What's your background? Sure. So I, I'm a serial entrepreneur. My background is a PhD in computer science uh, with a focus on AI. Um, when I got done with that, I was working as a professor. And uh, one day I was in a store and I said, I wish I knew what the price of this bike was. And this was before smartphones. And I realized that what I want to do is call uh, my girlfriend at the time and have her look it up on the internet. And I thought, that's silly. I should be able to just say what I want and have it tell me over the phone. And I can decide if this is a good price and a, and a good bike. And that started our journey on building essentially what was Siri over a 1-800 number before smartphones. Uh, that ended up getting sold to AOL very quickly within, I think, 18 months or so. And we built a bunch of telephony services at AOL. So AOL is this long ago service, but uh, it was the first service that had voicemail to email going to over a million people. It had a number of other really cool speech recognition offerings we did. And I did that for a while. And then uh, I, I was leaving. I was going to take a year off. And I got a call from someone who said, hey, there's this little company called Umail that's trying to reinvent voicemail. I thought, well, that's telephony. Let me go take a look. And one thing led to another. And I've been doing Umail for quite some time. Wow. So... You joined Umail and um, you said voicemail telephony, but I think the company pivoted a little over time. So tell us a little bit about that journey. So the core idea of Umail was that we could build a much better voicemail that was out there, one that people would actually find useful and like to use and do some cool things. And it turned out that the carriers you know, who we wanted to sell to just weren't interested and we couldn't get enough traction. And so the company uh, pivoted, actually, to first become a consumer voicemail platform instead of focusing on carriers. And in our consumer voicemail platform, we had this really cool feature, which was it could play an out-of-service message to certain callers. So certain phone numbers would come in and they'd hear, do-do-do, this number's out of service. The obvious intent of that feature was somebody met somebody and didn't want them calling them anymore. And you could fool them into thinking your phone was out of service. Well, you know, that feature grew and a lot of people used it. We were looking at the data and one day we discovered, wow, there's a lot of people that are blocking 800 numbers. Hey, there's a lot of people blocking the same number. And so when we looked at that, we realized after a little bit, people were using this to block spam calls. And so that pivoted us into, well, let's help us. That's the primary use case of our service now. Let's help people really do that well. 
And then once we got into that, we realized, hey, it's not enough to just block them at the consumer device level. We have to block them when they're starting. And that's how we got into scam fighting. So that's really interesting. So you started with a service that was intended to kind of help people avoid the people they don't want to talk to. But then you realize that's happening. But the larger scale is really unintended calls. People just, you know, spamming them, robocalls and getting harassing them. And and I can say as a as a consumer, I see a huge decline over the years. I remember all those car warranty calls and the IRS calls. And it's not that there are no calls today from unknown numbers that are probably not, you know, not going to help me. But I can just imagine being a business user and how hard it is when you are getting many calls that you don't from unknown numbers, but it's these are legitimate calls. At the same time, there are also a lot of, you know, spam calls and, and robocalls. So how do small businesses deal with this problem? So small businesses have it the hardest because they really want to answer every call that comes in because it could be a prospect. It could be a current customer, you know, that they want to answer the phone. The problem is that for a while, the odds were if you answered the phone, you were talking to a scammer, not a customer. And so it's a huge waste of time for these businesses. And often some of the scam calls that the businesses got were, hey, we've pre-qualified you for a loan. We just need some information. That seems really appealing. And so these businesses were getting scammed. So it's been really rough for what we would call the very small business, the one, two, three, four person business, um, because they they live and die by their phones, by calls and texts. Wow. In 2012, 2013, 2015, I would say we still got a lot of these car warranty calls, IRS calls, different calls from agencies, uh, quote unquote. How, how did those decline? What happened? Well, so overall, robocalls have only declined a bit. But some of the campaigns you've mentioned, like the car warranty stuff, we were behind getting rid of it. And so one of the things we do is we realize stopping the calls at the consumer's device is important, but it's too late. You want to go find out who's making the calls and shut off their access to the telephony network. And so we can't shut off their access to the telephony network, but we can collect data on what they're doing, use that to work with others to find out where they're making the calls and then have the full power of the regulatory environment and enforcement come down on them. So the car warranty guys, there was data collected from our huge batch of email users that showed the volume of those calls, where they were being made. They were traced back to the source. The government put together a case, went after them. All the carriers had to shut them off. And there goes a billion of those calls. Same with student loan calls. We all used to get those student loan calls. We were behind getting rid of those. The health insurance calls, we were behind getting rid of those, the health insurance scam calls. So it's been a bit of a cat and mouse game of going after the largest scale campaigns using our data, our carrier relationships, and the power of the government to take this illegal behavior that they see at scale and do everything they can to shut it off. That's really interesting. So it's a mix of regulatory process and technology. It sounds like there's almost not too much desire from the telcos to do it. It's more like the pressure that they have that's driving the action here. And that brings me to a different topic, which is the scam life cycle. And I often talk about the scam life cycle that starts with the um, call coming in or a text message, and then the emotional manipulation happens and the individual, the consumer is tricked into 
transferring money to the cyber criminal, giving them personal information, giving them other things. And then they realize they transfer the money. They might realize it's a scam. They go to re report, hopefully, to authorities, to their bank, and try to get to recovery if that happens, that's great, but in most cases it doesn't. And then there, there are other issues. And then when we talk about this, I also talk about the unwitting accomplices across the scam life cycle. So you have those that are enabling the text messages and calls to come in, namely the telcos. And then you have the social media companies that are allowing all the traffic to happen on their sites, the marketplaces. You have the banks that are in, in charge of the transfer itself or the credit card companies and others. And then you have law enforcement, regulatory, all these that are kind of, I would say, players, not necessarily, none of them, I believe, wants to help the scammers, but we're also enabling right now. And I think all of these, um, all of these players that I mentioned need to think about what they can do. And the only way to solve this is really to have everyone. So I think in previous episodes, we talked a lot about banks, but I would love for you to shed some light around the telcos here and what their role is and what they've tried to do and what the regulators are pushing them to do. So I think telcos is not a monolithic thing. I think there's the telcos that we know who um, provide our, our cell phones, right? T-Mobile, AT&T, Verizon. Those telcos want robocalls to go away. It's not helpful for them, right? They get complaints for the consumers. They've had to spend a ton of money trying to block calls when they get to the handset. They've had to implement something called shaken and stir the regulators have wanted, which has been really expensive to try to authenticate calls. The telcos would love if there was a magic wand. Those telcos would love if there's a magic wand and this all went away. The, there's another set of telcos, though, who actually, whether they want to or not or are aware of it or not, benefit from the robocalls. Because when you have to put a phone call on the network, it's called originating the call. You pay for that privilege. And every carrier that has, the, has a piece of that call as it gets from the start to the finish, they get paid for the privilege. And so with robocalls being in the $5 billion-ish amount every month, they're a material source of revenue for a lot of these telcos. So while they may not want to go get rid of this, there's a risk to them of revenue going away. Plus, there's an expense to try to work with other companies to find out who's making these calls. And so there's a lot of resistance to, to doing much more than the minimum, at least at, at first. A lot of them try, but it gets really complicated. It's really hard to shut some of this stuff off. Others are just, I would say, their whole business model is based on short duration calls and calls from robocallers. And you know they, they probably are a little more actively working with the robocallers. And we've seen enforcement actions shut some of these down when there's evidence of that. Wow. So tell me a little bit about Shake and Stir. What problem did it try to solve and how does it work and is it successful? So Shake and Stir was supposed to, and the problem it's trying to solve was to stop spoofed calls. So the idea was that when an automated dollar makes a call, it just fills in whatever number it wants. That's spoofing. So for example, if I see a number that looks like my bank and the number is at the bank of my card, it might not be my bank actually because it's a spoofed number, right? It, exactly. So sometimes they spoof an existing number because they'll be more likely to get through. Other times they spoof a number in your neighborhood of phone numbers. So it looks like another number in your city. So you're more likely to answer. Other times they just randomly pick numbers uh, so that every time they call, it's a different number and it's harder to block them because you can't have a block list that's that's infinite. 
So that was a problem that Sir Shaken was designed to solve. The carrier making a call had to basically swear, sign that they know who made this call and it's really their number. And then the call, when it finally gets to a destination, that carrier looks and says, okay, this call was signed. We know where it came from. It's legit. I can put a little green check mark. How can they trust that it's a legitimate number? How does the carrier identify that? In the beginning carrier. So the originating carrier is supposed to know their customer. So they're supposed to have done some diligence. So if I work with a call center, who I, this call center says that it validates all the companies using it. It's Chase, it's Bank America, et cetera. So they do some diligence to know who their customer is. At least that's the theory. They've got evidence of who it is. And so they can authenticate the call. And there's different levels of knowing your customer. So an authentication level A is I absolutely have a relationship. I know who these guys are. A B might be have a relationship with someone who's vouching for it. And, you know, there's other other tiers. But that was the idea was, okay, at least now everybody's got to sign their call. And so you can't just make up numbers. Well, there's two problems. One is it's not ubiquitous, yes. But, you know, presumably that'll get solved. Everybody will have, have put shaken and stir in place. But the second problem is kind of more insidious. is that the bad guys use shaken and stir. They get real numbers. They authenticate them. And then they appear to be, you know, what the, they can get the, get the green check mark, appear to be verified, and take advantage of that. I, I got a call a few days ago from Netflix. It's not Netflix. It was just somebody who's got a SIM somewhere and filled in the caller ID or caller name to be Netflix and is calling people. So that was kind of a, the problem there. So it solved one problem, but kind of created another. So in that example of Netflix, what happened? What do you think could have happened? Did they register the company under... like Netflix with something that's not an I but an L like what how how could they pass the know your customer validations that the telco was to enforce well but believe it or not t-mobile and some of the other carriers have a web form where you can put what name you want right so some people eliminate their last name for privacy or they'll fill in whatever whatever name they want it's a legitimate thing their customers want right so Uh, so somebody gets a real T-Mobile phone or SIM or whatever and says, I decided I'm going to be the IRS or I'm going to be Netflix and they just fill it in. And so it's, it's not much more complicated than that in, the, in this particular case, as far as we could tell. So as a consumer, how do I know that a phone was verified or do I need to know if a phone was verified with Sir Shaken? And I think there might be some differences between iOS and Android here. Well, in general, the, the phone is supposed to give an indication that this was a stir-shaken call, an authenticated caller ID. So it's really that number. And the fact is, it really is that number making the call. The question is, what about the caller name and everything associated with that call? That's the harder part. And so I think Shaken and Stir has been successful in reducing the number of spoof calls. I think it's made it a bit easier to trace back some calls to the source because the The call when it gets to a destination now says what carrier put it on the phone network so there's there's some help there but it's just not a solution if a bad guy can go get a hundred thousand phone numbers and start making calls that look authenticated you haven't done much but put a big speed bump in front of them you made their life a little more difficult and at the same time you might have helped them because now they look a little more real when their calls get to consumers and it's fairly easy you don't actually need to necessarily go to a telco to get a phone number you can go to like Tulio or other companies where they offer phone numbers in different ways as well. Exactly. There's 5,000-ish registered carriers in the U.S. that fill out an FCC, I think, Form 499, so that they're a carrier, they can get phone numbers, they can do carrier services. And if, if the, any of those aren't behaving, then you're going to get people using their services to go make robocalls that they shouldn't. So with Stir Shaken, 
it's just another hurdle for small one for speed, speed bump, you said, for cyber criminals, but actually they just found a way around it. And um, so, so what was the next step? So how do we, despite that fact, um, as an industry, as a telco industry, try to fight these bad calls from, from bad people? Well, I think there's, I think one of the biggest things is that carriers have to know their traffic. It's one thing to know your customer ostensibly. I'm working with this call center. I've got this business. But you need to know what the traffic is they're actually putting on the network. Are they the Red Cross or somebody who's making calls for the Red Cross, soliciting legitimate donations and providing help in an area and suddenly making lots of calls? Or are they some scammer in a foreign country pretending to be you know, some company you have a relationship with telling you, hey, your subscription canceled or you have a new subscription, You know, call me to, to fix it. And so everybody's got to know their traffic. And so I think that's where email has fit into this whole picture in that we have a huge user base, which is like a giant sensor network of what traffic is coming from what numbers. And so we see that illegal traffic. And once you see the traffic, you know, there's a problem. And so I think it's, you know, you mentioned all these different sources. I think you've got regulators trying to put pressure to do uh, carriers in the industry to do certain things. I think the carriers are starting to move toward know your customer a bit more. The next step will be knowing their traffic and the last step will be acting on it. So, you, you know, I think some of these carriers probably in their hearts know they're carrying bad stuff and they're, they're told, hey, here's a phone number that's carrying bad stuff. They block that phone number. They aren't going and saying, well, who's the customer that provided this phone number and made, made calls from 500 other phone numbers? I'm just blocking the one. No, no, no. you got to block them all. And I think as you see that, you'll start seeing the raw traffic numbers starting to decline. So there won't be these guys who make 100 million calls in a month anymore. That's going to become really difficult. What you, what you are going to see is extremely targeted efforts, and we already see it, where they go find a data breach. So now they've got a list of numbers. They've got a list of identity information to use to convince people that's who they are. And they're going to make a much smaller set of calls. So now you get a batch of real numbers, you make a smaller set of calls, you're going to have a much higher, you know, quote unquote, click through and conversion rate for the scams. And so that's where it's heading. So let's talk about that for a second. So in the past, what these uh, cyber criminals did was they, they would cast a wide net, they would just call random numbers and hope that a robocall was effective enough in trying to get them to, you know, dial one, call back. And then they would scam them. And what they're doing now is they're actually leveraging data from data breaches that is much more targeted, much more effective in building rapport with the victim because they have additional information that could be used to verify some information about them, which is much more effective in manipulation into actually transferring money. And we also see a mix now of text messages and scam calls where it actually starts with a text message and a callback number, and then they get uh, the user to or the victim to call them back. And uh, the most effective way is really the human talking and persuading and answering the questions and finding a way around the red flags that the, the victim might have. Tell me a little bit about how it's possible to tackle that combination of text messages and phone calls. So one of the interesting thing is, things that we see is exactly what you said. It's basically multi-channel efforts to get to consumers. So robocall them, robotext them, email them, all of these things with sometimes a phone number or an action that's requested, call back or press one. The key thing here is collecting a lot of data to be able to see the patterns. Okay, 
where did this number and this scam we recognize? Here's a text message. It's got a phone number. Where, where did they get that number? Who got it? What was the behavior of that number? Because then you can really quickly start watching other numbers for similar behavior. So is there a new number? And all of a sudden it's getting thousands of calls. Okay, that's already inherently suspicious behavior. And then you can kind of look and say, okay, what text messages are mentioning this number? Well, those are spooked. Okay, that's super suspicious. We have enough information to shut that number down, right? So if that number appears in a context where there's a problem, you can start shutting it down. So you find it that way. You know, honeypots get the emails or the text messages or whatever, and here, here's the number. But it's also important to look at the behavior of phone numbers on the inbound side, not just on the outbound side. And so it's going to be a, tackling that problem is pretty difficult. The, the good thing is that they need to send out a lot of messages with that phone number in it in order to drive the calls back to it whether it's texts or voicemails or emails. So you can look at that data and start going, okay, where am I seeing new phone numbers that don't, that are in, in the context that that's a problem. Okay. Now I can shut it down. Whereas a carrier, I've given a new number to the small business. That's, I don't know, claiming it's a gardening business and now it's got 7,000 calls in a day. <laughs> okay. That's probably the best, world's best gardening business. So it's about knowing your traffic. Yeah. So Tell me a little bit about honeypots and how effective they are in kind of detecting these bad activities. So honeypots, the whole idea behind a honeypot, they're just numbers that are out there solely for the purpose of hoping to get a call or a text from a, from a spammer or a scammer. They're really good at catching large scale things very quickly. So they're casting the wide net of, like we talked about earlier, like just send mass sending of messages or calls or verbal calls. So they're good at catching that. You'll find those. They'll find those. You also find the stupid people who are just doing a smaller scale thing, but just calling all these funky numbers in a particular area. And if your honeypots are large enough, you'll catch some of those too. So honeypots are a great tool, but the real tool you need is actual consumers with real voicemail and real phone numbers, because those are the ones that are getting called by the breach data. Those are the ones that are being targeted. And so we focus on both. We have a ton of honeypots and the many millions of honeypots, and we've got many millions of consumers. So we're trying to collect everything. So maybe that's a good plug to talk about the impact of data breach, because often we think about, okay, in a data breach, our pa username password is compromised. So good thing they implemented multi-factor authentication, all the services. So we have the texts um, or, or other authenticators available. But the impact of data breaches, and we know that the data that's used in data breaches, cyber criminals use that to um, emotionally manipulate or build rapport with the customers. But, it, but based on what I'm hearing from you, there's another use of that data from data breaches. So, so talk a little bit about that. So basically the data breach gives you a, tar a target list, right? So if you wanna try to do a scam on account takeovers for banks and you have a bunch of phone numbers of people who are at a given bank, that's a really great target list. You're not calling everybody hoping to find, say, a Chase Bank customer. Here they are, right? And so you can even be more targeted. You go, well, here's all the ones in Pacific Palisades, California, and I'm going to use the Chase branch number in Pacific Palisades, California, and call them, right? Or do whatever manipulation I'm going to do. So data breaches are actually really, really dangerous for people. Um, not just identity theft that's going to take over their identity right away. I think that's less of a concern. More of a concern is enough information to convince people to give them other information or do things. And that's the real harm. And that's really an interesting thought because often when I think about data breaches, and I know data breaches can happen to any company, and it's about how you react and how you protect and what you do with it. But 
At the same time, if you think about financial institutions or retail organizations where you have essentially a username phone number, then any size company will yield pretty good return on investment for cyber criminals. So if you're a large financial institution, you probably have a lot of controls in place. You invest in cybersecurity. You make sure, you know, if you're a smaller one, of course, you invest as much as you can. But even if you're a very small credit union, it's really important to make sure that you protect that data very, very, um, you know, in a robust manner because you're essentially producing a, a hit list for, for these cyber criminals. Absolutely. And I'll give you one example. If you've got, a, you know, customers of, say, a credit card and you've got, you know, they have a particular, you know, MasterCard from somebody, right? And you've got the list of their phone numbers. You've got a list of maybe their names. You've got this stuff. What you can then do is call the credit card company as if you've got their caller ID. And now there's certain things you can do without any real authentication, right? Oh, we see this number is calling. Would you like your balance? Press one. Oh, there's my balance. Okay, now I know somebody's balance. I know their name. I might know the social security number. I know their account number. I know their balance. I can send them a text saying, hey, I'm really this bank. Here's your balance to confirm I know who you are, that I'm real. I need you to do something. And then it's just natural click, and then you're down a rabbit hole. So the breaches allow a lot of the, you don't want to put too much security on someone retrieving a bank balance, right? It's super convenient to just have it from their, their, their phone that called in. But you know, that can be used as part of a bigger scam. And people are like, well, who else could know my bank balance? Right. It's not that hard. So it sounds like you guys have good visibility into the consumer aspect, kind of what's going on in that world. And you have a good, uh, you have the ability to leverage that data in order to kind of get things to shut down. Tell me about the collaboration on the telco side. And, you know, what are some challenges in collaborating with different stakeholders? And what are, what do you see in terms of trends and openness to collaboration with organizations like yours? So it's really interesting. When a carrier gets in trouble with the regulators, they generally come running to us to help them fix the mess because we have the data, we know what's going on. We can help them see where, you know, where they're carrying bad traffic and they can clean it up. So when there's real regulatory or enforcement pressure, the carrier, we're the carrier's best friend. I think in other places, it's a challenge, right? Where those guys are collecting data that, you know, they're not, they don't mean to be bad and we're showing they've got a, they've got a problem. And so we're trying to actually help the carriers in multiple ways, not just be the guys that shut down the fraud, but also the guys who help the legitimate calls get through. So there's a huge problem now where you get spam likely and it's your doctor's office. My home phone number is scam likely now. I can assure everybody I'm not, I'm not scamming anybody. But, you know, my wife was trying to call me and my son and my daughter to try to get a hold of us to bring something, you know, over the hill where we were. And all of us were busy. Nobody's answering the phone. She just kept calling. All of a sudden, it's scam likely, right? And so that's happening at scale, the call centers. And so we actually have data that, hey, this guy's behaving, not violating the TCPA. These calls are legitimate. And so you should be letting them through. And you can go and pressure other carriers to make sure they get through. So we're the knowing your traffic is not just know the bad stuff. It's also understand the good stuff that should be getting through that's not. And so we're trying to build services. And, and we're starting to successfully work with carriers selling them a whole package. Here's how we can help you get rid of some of the fraud. Here's how we can help you get some of the stuff through. And over time, you build trust that, you know, we don't want to put carriers out of business. We want to put scammers out of business. And once once we all start understanding that and we try to optimize our offerings and our help, it's going pretty well. So we're, we're signing more and more of these 
carriers at all levels. And we're also helping the carriers realize as we partner with enterprises, hey, that's actually a scam call. Do you really want to be carrying a bank imposter scam call? And when it's put that way, none of them want to be doing that. And, and we can help them clean up their network so they can say, hey, we got rid of this. We helped the bank. And so then there's, there's a, it's a positive. Right. And you mentioned uh, TCP. So I know that there are a few kind of regulations that not necessarily are on scams, but just around bad calls and the misuse of uh, the communication. So can you walk me through just a few examples? I, I know there's TCPA and TSR and other guidelines. Can you kind of give me maybe more a general outlook of their goal rather than specifically what each of them is? So the goal is to make sure you're not calling a consumer without the consumer's consent and that you're clearly identifying yourself, the purpose of the call and making it easy for consumers to opt out. That's that's the core of it, right? So if a consumer puts their number on a list because they're shopping for a car, at some point they're like, I bought a car. I don't need any more cars from call dealer, car dealers. They should be able to opt out easily and stop getting them, you know, automated calls. That, that's kind of the goal. Turns out it's complicated. Different states have different rules and it's easy for, for a legitimate caller to get caught by those things, even if they don't mean to. And so we can help show them, hey, this call is getting blocked because you're violating TCPA, even if you didn't realize it. But there's this section or you called people in New York after nine o'clock or whatever it is you did. And that's really helpful to them because a lot of them really they don't there's no point in calling people that they're just annoying for a lot of the legitimate telemarketers. So I bet all the legitimate companies try to adhere to those. But the cyber criminals obviously don't care about all these rules. It, it's actually interesting, right? I, I'm, we're seeing scams that look very legitimate. In fact, some of the cyber criminals take the exact same audio from a particular bank calling about fraud alerts, do the exact same one. So completely compliant calls, everything else, but it's fake, mm-hmm. right? So they're watching what everybody else does and trying to replicate it. So the scammers don't want their calls blocked, right? And so they're going to figure out, well, how do I get my call through it? First, it was use the bank's number, but now it's pro- that's not going to work because it's sort of shaken. Then it's seem like I'm the bank. It's really interesting because one thing is, you know, scammers are, I, I just wish they would use all their knowledge for good because they are very creative. They're intelligent in manipulation. They are, they know the regulatory requirements in order to navigate through their way in the industry. So it's really that light, you know, that um, supply chain of of very heavy knowledge that they need to bring to the table in order to perform these uh, activities, and it's just scary. It's they're marketers in the wrong profession, right? Like their whole job is to get through to consumers and get the consumers to convert. That's a marketing problem, and they they and one of the things that we did, I think, or made it easy for them was it's really cheap to make huge numbers of calls. So even a bad banner ad will convert if everybody sees it and they realize they can just do a bad scam. And if I call enough people, I'm going to get enough people to make it worthwhile. I mean, you can call every single person in LA for 2000 bucks maybe. And that's probably not shopping around much. So get to 5 million people for 2000 bucks. Some portion are going to just answer. You're going to confuse some and it's probably a pretty good return. What do you need to scam one or two people successfully? And you got your money back. Everything else is golden. And so it's just extremely profitable for these guys. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about cross-industry collaboration. Again, I've been talking a lot about banking and credit unions, and I'm wondering if there's conversation in kind of the telco industry about cross-industry collaboration. And I'm asking in particular because in um, 
the recent reports by UK Finance in, um, I, I think it was last year and the year before, they they t- they have this uh, kind of promo before before the report itself, and they talk about the fact that the financial industry can't fight this war alone. That they need we need cross functional collab or cross industry collaboration, and they definitely mention telcos as one of those v- verticals that needs to step up and step in the game. And I'm wondering if there are any kind of industry conversations around that. I think it's companies like us that are the glue that's tying the two together, right? It's not in the, the telcos are not in the business of blocking scam calls and trying to put scammers out of business. That's not their job. Their job is to facilitate communication. And, you know, the banks are not in the telco world. They use telco services to call customers, text customers, but that's not their expertise either. So you need companies that are in between, that understand the scams, that can understand data given from banks, can understand data from telco consumers, and put that together to be able to shut, you know, investigate and shut this stuff down. So like a lot of industries, you end up with the bridges. So the bridges are the ones that understand both in a particular vertical area, like fighting scams. And we're one of those companies that that's kind of what we specialize in, being able to go to a bank and show them, here's what's happening with your brand out there. Here's the calls and the texts that are out there and what's happening, be able to help them connect that to, oh, that's why we've got all these customer Mm -hmm. support calls. That's why we're doing recompense. They're starting this way. And really importantly, we show them, here's how you stop it. We can stop it for you. Here's how we're going to do it. And we make that a service that we can then sell to the banks and leverage our carrier relationships. And, you know, we've, we've done stuff like we shut down a CEO impersonation scam that had been going on for seven months. We shut it down in two hours. And so the bank could never do that, right? But we had all the right relationships. We could see where it was coming from. We, we talked to them. We showed the evidence of it. They shut down the scam. That's amazing. I think the scammers are probably pretty shocked. Like what happened to what we've been doing for, for seven months? And those are one of the most effective scams and lots of money um, because financial, um, sorry, because large organizations have the ability to make those large transactions unnoticed almost. So exactly. I wanted to conclude with a question about kind of the future and what you're hopeful about. You've seen the evolution of kind of robocalls, casting the wide net to becoming more efficient, more targeted, larger return on investment for cyber criminals, um, regulatory pressures, and the need to protect customers. What are you hopeful about with everything that's going on? And the level of sophistication of cyber criminals is increasing, but yet I I really want to kind of shine a light on some hope. I think my my hope is that Umail becomes an insurance company where the insur- that we solve the problem working with everybody else and calls still happen but we're able to shut them down quickly. So that's what I'm hopeful with, that we'll get to. I think we're going to get there in stages. So the first stage is nuisance calls are mostly going to go away over the next few years uh, because it doesn't pay to just call people randomly. It's going to be very targeted. That's bad because it's targeted, but it's good because your phone rings less. So I'm hopeful for that. I'm hopeful for some of the things in the industry will bring back a little more trust and consumers will be able to at least answer certain kind of calls, right? There'll be enough technology in place that you can know that this really is your bank calling. Like, for example, you make an appointment with your bank to call at a particular time. The scammers aren't going to know that. The bank calls, you see the number, it's got some kind of thing that says, hey, this is the call at your appointment. You can answer the phone. So I think there's a whole bunch of technology that's going to organize communications better. Uh, I'm hopeful that consumers get more educated so they don't fall for this stuff. I mean, I, you know, we spend a lot of time with our kids like, look, just don't answer the phone unless it's, you know, us or whatever. Don't answer the phone. And 
um, call them back. You know, voicemail is your friend. Look at the voicemail. See what it says. It says something about your debit card. Well, go get your debit card. Look at the number of your debit card and call it. It's more work, but you're in control. So never give your information out. I think consumers, if no consumers gave information out, there's not really a problem anymore, right? So we have to train consumers. Don't give information out unless you initiated the interaction. And so I think there's a set of things in terms of changing consumer behavior, improving technology. I think enforcement's getting more aggressive. Um, and I think regulations are getting smarter. You put all that together, it will make a dent. But as we can see, email's been around for a long time and there's still email scams left and right, right? right. So it's just, it's a, you need all those things happening to just lessen the impact over time. And for me, if, if the, the, my goal is instead of, you know, what is it? 10 billion in scam dollars going out in the past mm -hmm. year or 30, depending on the estimate. In the, US. Going, in the US, just getting that into the hundreds of millions would be a huge win for everybody and then move right. it down from there. Absolutely. So I'm hopeful. I think there's enough people working on enough technology. We'll, we'll make progress over time. It's never instant, but it's a war that can be won. Great. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to have you on the podcast and I'm looking forward to see how things evolve. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate being on the podcast. It was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed this episode. In the next two episodes of Scam Rangers, we'll talk about the challenges that our legal system is dealing with, as well as a perspective on social media. For more information about scams, follow me on LinkedIn, Ayelet Bigger Levine. And by the way, if you ever get a text message or an email or something on social media that looks suspicious, you can always verify it on scamranger.ai. Let me know what you found.